people re-entering society from prison face extraordinary obstacles to building a stable, happy life and in their recovery from life in prison itself. In most cases, returnees are required to quickly re-establish housing and employment while they are navigating a host of other complex requirements and social services systems. Failure to achieve re-entry benchmarks can result in a violation in their terms of probation and a return to jail. For many returnees, life after prison becomes another circus of programs and payments, mounting not to a second chance, but to another set of missed opportunities for positive change. The Safer Foundation, a Chicago-based nonprofit, has been working for 50 years to improve transitions for individuals with criminal records to slow the revolving door of crime and incarceration. SAFER provides a one-stop shop for re-entry needs, including workforce development, educational, and mental health services. Its president and CEO, Victor Dixon, understands the nature of poverty and what it takes to climb out of intergenerational cycles. My conversation with him is an inspirational tour of his own vocation and life story and how that story informs his work with those who are seeking a second and, in his terms, their first chance at establishing a hopeful and productive life. Victor Dixon, thanks for joining us on Hardly Working. Well, thank you, Brent. I appreciate the opportunity. It's really great to have a chance to catch up. Um, you and I have been in conversation about issues relating to prisoner reentry and employment for people with criminal records for, it's. I, I want to say it's at least a decade now. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. It's been almost a decade. <laughs> it's unbelievable how quickly time is passing. Um, so uh, real, a real pleasure to have you, Victor, um, to sort of refresh this conversation. Um, I've always had you know so much esteem, both for you personally, obviously, but also for uh, the work of the Safer Foundation um, in assisting men and women who are transitioning from prison uh, back to the community. So way I like to do this is I really, um, I like to give our listeners a sense of who, who's doing the talking um, here and their background. And so I like actually to go pretty far back, as far back as you're comfortable, but just, you know, how did you, okay. how did you get uh, from where you started in life to, um, to the leadership uh, of the Safer Foundation? Well, it's, quite an interesting journey and uh it wasn't uh, something i would say i knew you know at the start of my uh career as an adult that i would end up here but i'm very pleased that i did end up here and the things that i have uh, been able to do along the way have all contributed to um to being able to do what i do today uh, but i i would say that you know for me um you know, I grew up in the city of Chicago, um, grew up to a, a single mom who was uh, uh, had uh, rheumatic fever as a child and uh, uh, had a bad heart, uh, was never really able to work. Um, and she um, she ended up passing away when I was uh, 14 years old. And so I had a uh, kind of uh, upbringing. Um, you know, on welfare, you know, with a single parent and, 
and uh, you know I you know that that kind of does shape you sometimes it can make you or break you um, fortunately for me I had some very very strong uh, faith filled grandparents that were very present uh, in my life uh, they were sharecroppers from uh, Arkansas Mississippi uh, went through the Great Depression uh, the Jim Crow oppression uh, of the South uh, my grandfather, I think, uh, made it to fourth grade, and um, my grandmother made it to about sixth grade. But they were people with deep faith, uh, determination, hard work, resiliency. Uh, I remember my grandmother getting her high school diploma, and she she had to be in her fifties, and eventually becoming a, a nurse. And my grandfather working um, in factories, and you know just getting up early, early, early in the morning and leaving out both of them. Um, and so I think I, I learned a lot from them about just, uh, you know, the kind of hard work and the kind of resiliency and determination, you know, mental uh, fortitude that you need to uh, endure things. And and, uh, and really it inspired a drive to, to go further and do more. Um, you know, they ended up uh, homeowners and, you know, living a pretty, pretty decent life, you know, and coming from where they came from, that was a huge achievement. So, um, you know, that, that probably more than anything instilled in me a drive to uh, go further, to do more, to build on uh, the, the uh, legacy that they established. Uh, I think it's driven myself and other members of our family, um, to achieve things, and um, that's that's kind of where it all started. It sounds like you lived with them after your mom passed. Um, so uh, you would have gone through high school while you were living with them. When did when did the idea first come to you that um, that you wanted to pursue education beyond high school? Uh, to pursue a particular vocation, yep. you know, uh, just education generally. I mean, oh, uh, education. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 It, it it was almost a, you know, like I said, you know, uh, you know, I've done a little bit of research on my family history, and it, one of the things that struck me was uh, as I looked at prior previous generations and looking at census records and all that, how you know, it started out with, you know. Uh, my ancestors not being able to read and write and then they could read and write. And then you could see they went to fourth grade and, you know, somebody went to sixth grade and, and, and just this sense of, you know, every generation needs to make progress, mm. you know, and we've, we've seen that in our family going back many, many, many generations that there's been a slow, steady progress. And I think that, that, you know, for me, it was like, you know, you need to, you need to make progress. You need to not squander, uh, the opportunity that you have that your, you know, grandparents, great grandparents, et cetera, never, ha- never had these kind of opportunities. And, and that, that kind of, uh, that kind of hit me, you know, pretty early. And I think some of my, you know, siblings and cousins and all, you know, we've all gone and, to college and others, you know, advanced degrees and things like that. Um, my grandfather used to always say something. He would never let anybody sleep past nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> never, you know, in his house, you, you, you were not sleeping. And so he would, uh, I remember him just 
just like sounded like he would kick the door in, you know, and he, he was just opening the door. But when you're asleep and mm-hmm. and and he would always say, uh, let go of that bear and grab a mule. And, go, you I'm know, sorry, let go of the bear and grab the, let a, mule. a mule. A mule. OK, get to work. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I and at first I didn't kind of get it, and then finally it's like, yeah, bears sleep six months, <laughs> mules are out there working, and and that's what he would always say, and that kind of thing about you know, hey, don't be lazy, get up and get going. Uh, after a while, you know, it just becomes you know, you resist it, but it becomes internalized, and right. you, you find yourself. A habit. <clears throat> yeah, it becomes yeah. a habit. So, yeah, so yeah, right. that, yeah, I, you know, it, it it's not that the usual. You know, I had through I uh, had a corporate career that you know twenty years now of of uh, social services and kind of you know giving uh, kind of career, and uh, I would say that what I learned from them of uh, grandparents and, and my mother, and then. And then I had one really terrible boss. It's horrible. It yeah, horrible everybody needs at boss. least one of those in their life. They just need to have one really bad you know, boss. Right? I probably I probably learned more from the worst boss that I ever had about, you know, if I ever became a leader, don't do these things. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't ever do these things. Don't treat your staff this way. Don't treat your your employees this way, you know, don't take this attitude. Uh, and I, I learned probably more from having the worst boss of my life than I did from all the, <laughs> all the great bosses. The good, right. the good yeah. Yeah. So absolutely. where did you, what, where was your corporate career? Um, you know, I, I started out, uh, majored in psychology and I, I thought at one point I wanted to be a psychiatrist, but then I ended up having, uh, uh, a kid, you know, Mary having a kid very young and, um, and I just needed to make more money than I was making. I was a psychiatric aide in a mental hospital and, uh, did some crisis intervention work, which interesting enough coming full circle back to Safer. Yeah. Some of those kind of things are, are what Safer Foundation does. And I have some familiarity of with that, but I needed to make more money. So I just started applying for jobs. I ended up getting a job at Southwestern Bell Telephone Company. I was living in Kansas City at the time, and as a, in sales and business sales, and um, I ended up, uh, you know, doing really well. You know, um, it was one of those things. You know, uh, right? You know, there's a consent decree with the Bell system to uh, open up opportunities to minorities, and you know, uh, that that's kind of how the door opened up and uh, I was able to get in and I ended up really being very successful as a salesperson and sales uh, manager and, and worked my way up and I um, eventually moved to Sprint Corporation um, and uh, ended up a corporate vice president at Sprint. Um, I was responsible at one point for half of the country, all the sales business salespeople and then uh, my last role, I had all of the uh, kind of technical people, network engineers and systems engineers and application development and Y2K testing stuff and all of that for the whole country. Um, 
and I uh, was the representative to a partnership that we had with Deutsche Telekom and British Telecom and uh, France Telecom. So I did quite a bit of traveling to Europe, meeting with our partners there, and uh, you know had a great great career. They uh, tried to sell the company to WorldCom, and I don't know if you remember Bernie yeah. Ebers, who ended up going to prison uh, for fraud, and you know this was the, around the Enron. All that stuff was going on around that time. So uh, I, with a lot, a lot of other executives, uh, left when uh, they were trying to sell the company. You know, and our stock options vested. You know, and we were able to kind of take a, take a little parachute and yeah. bail out, and 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 I did that. And so it gave me an opportunity to say, look, now, you know, with this phase of my life, I want to, I still want to be, you know, active and everything, but I want to do something um, that has more, you know, meaning and value and, and giving back more, you know, not just about making money, but, you know, how do I help society? So, uh, so I went from there to, I uh, uh, became the executive pastor of the church and I uh, was really involved in a lot of global relief efforts. So I was traveling all over the world and India and Africa and Asia, you know, and different places. And, uh, and I did that, that, that for about seven years and then, um, ended up coming over to uh, sprint, uh, to, uh, to safer foundation. I'm sorry. And, uh, that's kind of the journey. So I think, uh, for me, with Safer Foundation being a large, uh, you know, fairly complex, you know, nonprofit um, operating in many offices, multiple states, you know, I know we're about 350 employees and $35 million annual budget. The business experience is, is very necessary because it is, you know, like running a decent sized small business. Well, and, and, and it uh, also you also have that experience of having been on the other side of the table, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, the, a lot of social services providers are, you know, trying to work with businesses to solve some of the challenges that, the, you know, their clients have. And you've, you've been there, you know what businesses are like and how they operate. So you speak that language as well. Yeah. And then, and then growing up kind of, poor and on welfare, I mean, I, I understand a little bit about what that's like and how, you know, one different turn of event, you know, I, I would have been in the system too. I mean, it's not, there's no, nothing that, you know, it's just that you know, God worked things out that I, I didn't wind up in the system too. I had uh, cousins that I grew up with uh, in really grew up with i mean close i left chicago and go off to college they stayed in the city and several of them ended up you know just in the system you know in the prison system in and out of prison and you know um there's not much difference between me and them i just kind of ended up on a different path but so that that helps you understand yeah no that's the client yeah that's so it's so helpful um you know obviously uh, you bring a, a an extremely unique background um, to your work um, as someone has seen how difficult life is uh, and then also having that 
support that you needed in order to, you know, take your family's story to the next level. I mean, I think that's just a, a, you know, really remarkable testament. So let me ask you, just building off of that, when you look at the, um, at the men and women that are coming through the doors of the Safer Foundation, I'm going to get you to talk about that in a second, uh, what the Safer Foundation is. But when you look at them, what do you see as the difference between their story and your story? Well, I, I think the, I think that one of the difference is um, I probably did not have the degree of uh, maybe family trauma that some of our clients have. Uh, some of them have grown up with uh parents who may have been on drugs and experienced homelessness and things like that at a very young age. And uh, I didn't really experience that. Mm. I think that's one big thing that's different. You know, I may have been in difficult circumstances, but I pretty much was around uh, family and friends and church people who were pretty stable and nurturing and not abusive and and uh, not traumatized themselves and therefore not traumatizing me. <clears throat> I think I think that what I encounter with a lot of our clients, if you if you get them to lower the uh, the walls and be vulnerable with you for a minute or two, you and you start asking them you know, tell me your story. You know, how did, how did you get here? If they go back far enough, oftentimes you will find neglect, trauma, abuse. And oftentimes, um, you, you know, what I conclude is that the majority of the people that we serve, we talk about giving them a second chance. They never got a first chance. Yeah. They never got a first chance. Um, you know, I, I often think about the story of one of our clients whose uh, father was an alcoholic, was physically abusive to uh, the, the, the mom and the kids. They were really poor, often didn't have heat. She, she talks about walking back and forth to school and without socks, you know, in the snow, uh, hungry, and, um, and basically... Um, she ended up uh, stabbing her own father to keep him from beating her mom. And uh, she said that after that, you know, he lived, he kept abusing the mother, but he would never abuse her anymore. And she said she learned that you have to make people afraid of you mm. to protect yourself. Right. And she also said she decided that she would never be hungry and cold and she would do whatever it takes, even if it was something illegal, to make sure that she was never hungry and cold. And so she got involved with the, uh, the drug dealer in the neighborhood and ended up selling drugs and other things that led to her being incarcerated multiple times. And I look at her and say, you never got the proper first chance. We can try and get you a second chance, but, you know, there there's some things that uh, should have happened differently in your life, and, and it didn't. 
and and we we have to kind of help overcome those things and get you on a different path. <clears throat> so, right. We we talk about you know rehabilitation, and that's not really the right word uh, for people. It's really habilitation um, because they started out um, uh, disabled, um, it, socially, psychologically, emotionally. Um, right. I had a question I wanted to go off, uh, just of that. It just, um, there's a, there's a lot of talk or has been a lot of talk over the years, uh, in policy circles about something called the success sequence. Um, the success sequence is, yeah, the success sequence, the sequence is graduate from high school, get a full-time job and, um, don't have any kids uh, until you get married. That's a success sequence. If you fall, if you do those three things, your chances of being poor in America are not zero, but really low. Um, and it, it's actually the, the failure to do those things, uh, that, uh, underlies, uh, poverty or so the theory goes. Um, but just sort of building off of what you just said, is that, is that entirely fair um, it, it, in your mind to just say to people, uh, follow these three steps? What, what, is, what would that mean to uh, someone coming up, you know, in difficult circumstances in Chicago? Well, I think it applies, as we can see now, not just to urban areas like Chicago, but we have small towns and rural areas that are now dealing with the same kind of issues that caused kind of a breakdown of community and family in urban areas. You know, the loss of uh, living wage jobs, for example, the influx of drugs, um, you know, breakdown of, of educational systems. So yes, ideally if, if you can make it through childhood with no trauma, no, mm-hmm. no, no drugs and all of that, and you can graduate and you can get a job and then marry and have kids, get those things in the right sequence. Um, unfortunately, that's just not the way it works for many, many uh, people in our country. <clears throat> and, um, and it seems to be not just, black people, but also in, in smaller towns and rural areas and, and some degree, some urban areas, it, it's white as well. The, the sequence is, is not working properly. The, the question for me becomes then, how did you um, kind of reverse those things? Mm-hmm. So, for example, for us, um, often, you know, probably half of the people that come to us are parents. Uh, they have a record now. They may not have a lot of work experience and, and the academic credentials. So now, how do you get people on back on the path? How do you mm-hmm. how do you correct the course? You know, we do bridge academic work to help boost uh, math and reading and science skills. Uh, get people ready then, so they can take the high school equivalency exam and. If they don't have a diploma uh, to get that diploma, they might have a diploma and still they don't have the right reading and math skills to become employed. 
or to become uh, successful in a vocational credential program. So boosting their academic level is important. Then getting them into uh, industry-recognized credential programs helps tremendously because uh, in many jobs, you can earn a living wage. You don't have to have a college degree. Um, so that's another way to get them back on the path. But uh, what we're seeing now is that there are really, if you've heard of the term social determinants of health, there are social determinants of incarceration as well. And they're very similar to the social determinants of health. Many of the people that we work with now, we find that they have uh, food insecurity. Uh, they have housing insecurity or maybe homeless. They have a substance issue that, that has to be addressed. They have trauma mm-hmm. or another, some other mental health issue that needs to be addressed. They have physical uh, health issues that need to be addressed. And so in order to get them course correct and get them back on that path, there's some very fundamental and basic things, needs that have to be addressed before you can even talk to somebody about careers and jobs and things like that. And, you know, I think about back in, you know, in the day, they used to talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. And it was basically this pyramid. And, And part of that whole psychological or social development theory was that if a person is not safe, if they don't have shelter, if they don't have food, they can't think about higher order things of human life. You know, they they can't they're not they're not they can't even get to thinking about things that are a part of how we self actualize and live our best life if they don't have the basics. So you've got to take care of the basics first. Then you can move up that pyramid and start dealing with other things that become higher order uh, functions and thoughts of human life. I was just going to say my friend, my friend, uh, Beth Babcock, who for years ran uh, Empath up in Boston, uh, which is a a program working with TANF moms uh, chiefly to help them, um, you know, sort of get their lives together and help them advance. I mean, they always start there, you know, at the, uh, first of all, uh, they, they're not providing a, a set of rules for you to follow, you know, like the success sequence. They're saying, you know, engaging people in a conversation about what they want, you know, in their lives. And then, uh, and, and, and having this kind of coaching relationship where they sort of develop their own plans for where they're trying to get. And I think uh, one of the things that Beth always says um, is that um, stress makes you stupid. The scientific psychological studies show that you, if you're under chronic stress, you're losing a, a standard deviation of intelligence, um, which makes it really hard to, you know, get up that that Maslow's hierarchy. If all you can think of is, you know, where where are I and my and my children going to sleep tonight? Um, right. So it's, uh, I think it's dead on you know, helping people to go back before they can go forward almost. Yeah. And, and we would kind of describe it as, you know, let's help, uh, kind of assess where you are right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's make sure that, uh, these basic needs are, are met. And once we have dealt with that, then, then, then people have that that emotional and psychic and yeah. psychological 
uh, uh, bandwidth to be able to now imagine, you know, what they want to aspire to do. And, and they still may not have really high, high aspirations, but, but uh, at least you can have that conversation if they're not worried about, am I going to be sleeping on the street tonight? You know, right? Because um, you're just in you're just in fight or flight mode, um, and you can't absolutely you can't think beyond the present emergency to anything. Yeah, you know, it's just like and it's a it's a know. very useful uh, uh, composition, human composition internally that we would get tunnel vision so sure. that we deal with the things that are most threatening to us immediately. Right. It's, you know, it's, an, evol- it's yeah. an evolved quality in human beings, you know, like right. the lion is over there, you know, let's, let's not get eaten. Um, and absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, our, our model is kind of built around yeah. that idea. Yeah. We, call, so, we call it our workforce development model. Yeah. I was just going to say, let, let's, let's walk everybody through a little bit of the background on safer, what safer is, where it came from, what its goals are, that kind of thing. So people know, um, safer foundation is, uh, this is our 50th year. And, uh, it's an organization that was founded by, uh, two gentlemen who were Catholic priests who both met wonderful women and, and they left the priesthood, both of them and got married. And I used to tease them and say, you know, well, you know, you had to, you know, do penance for that, you know. So I know <laughs> starting safer was part of part of the uh, <laughs> what you had to do to make up for that. But <laughs> they uh, were wonderful guys, and they um, they had some friends, you know. They in 1972, before mass incarceration, they were already start, you know, starting to encounter people who were getting out of prison and, and those guys and women were struggling. And they had a, some friends that worked for a company called the Portland Cement Company. And they got them to agree to start hiring people if they would work with those people and kind of get them ready. And so in that, you know, it's always been a central to what we do. It's always been starting with kind of what are the opportunities, who are the employers, uh, what can we do to find out what would qualify people to get those opportunities. And, and that's always just been there from the very beginning. Um, they came up with the name Safer Foundation. You know, they were, they said, look, if we can build a solid foundation in people's lives, we will have safer communities. And that's how they came up with the name Safer Foundation. So SAFER has always been in the workforce development space, um, always been involved in uh, education, uh, workforce development, uh, employment placement, working with employers. And uh, we have, we work both uh, in Illinois, we, we have what they call the, um, the um, sequential intercept model. And it looks at uh, from policing all the way through parole at every kind of uh, point where people encounter the justice system, the criminal legal system. And safer over the years, we've, we've tended to work with people at all of those points, whether it's policing, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, the bond court, um, 
uh, detention in jails, uh, working with people in prison pre-release, working with them on probation and parole. And then, you know, even after people are off parole, uh, we work with those folks. So we, um, we, we, we work at all, all points on that uh, continuum. And it's always with kind of the goal of, of getting people employed in the private sector and getting them into living wage opportunities and on some sort of career ladder where they can advance in a career. Um, we are, we're in two states, um, on multiple offices and, um, you know, we've been growing. We've, we've probably doubled, uh, in the last 10 years in terms of our size. And, um, and we've really expanded and moved beyond just workforce development and employment to a more holistic model where we are addressing those kind of social determinants of incarceration. And central to it now is what we call cross-systems uh, reentry navigation because we're dealing with the housing system, we're dealing with the educational system, the behavioral health system, the physical health system, and our clients have needs in all of those places and navigating, helping them navigate through uh, and across those systems to get everything they need is, is kind of a central piece of what we do now. Yeah, I mean, the fragmentation of the social services system is a whole problem unto itself, and um, that, that service you're providing in terms of coordinating um, across those all those organizations is really indispensable, um, especially for people coming out of prison who were traumatized before they went into prison, and then they had some more trauma while they were in prison, and now they're coming out, and they're on a time, you know, they're on a short time um, frame to right. to to like establish reestablish themselves or establish themselves, I should say, for the first time. So walk us through that a little bit. Uh, somebody comes in, uh, you know, walks in the front door on Jackson Street or wherever, uh, and or maybe you encounter them while they're still incarcerated or in a in a halfway house situation. What what do you do? What's the first? What what's the sequence of things that um, that a safer client experiences? You know, I, I think the first thing is uh, we're really trying to establish a rapport with people, trying to make sure that uh, they they know that they can trust us, that we we don't have an ulterior motive. We're not we're not seeking to uh, just use them in some way. Because a lot of people, they they've experienced people that say that they're here to help, and and, and it's not, it doesn't turn out that way. Um, I think we we like to uh, we implement assessments. We look at you know kind of an employability assessment. We 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 do kind of a general assessment, and one of the things is try to see if there are any like red flags that pop up, like is this person you know kind of exhibiting signs of trauma do they do they have a substance issue or any kind of mental health issue um, if they do we're going to kind of steer them towards our uh, counseling and wellness center to first try to address those issues maybe do a deeper assessment with them and start addressing those issues 
If they don't, then it, it's kind of off to more of the workforce development pathway where they um, look at employability assessments. And then, um, you know, then we start kind of looking at, okay, uh, wh where does this person want to go? You know, what do they want? Do, are they, some people want, a, they just say, look, I, I just need a job like now. You know, I don't, I don't have time to go through a whole development process. In that case, we may, we take them through some soft skill preparation. <clears throat> we may put them in a transitional job so they can start earning some money right away. Um, what, what do those transitional it, jobs look like? Um, well, so, sometimes uh, they, they are jobs where, you know, we, we have a construction company and we can, we can, uh, you know, kind of put them into something where they can, maybe start earning just, you know, just say as a laborer. Uh, we do have some, uh, a program we call Clean City Crews, where we work with the city of Chicago, and they dispatch our crews to, to go clean up uh, alleys and parkways and the boulevards, and, you know, things like that. So it's more of a transitional job to give them something to do, put them to work. We have a little uh, call center operation, so we can, you know, some people who can't do the physical labor, you know, we might be able to put them in, in that uh, position so they could uh, do something right away. So we we try to have uh, jobs like that. Um, but basically getting them into the soft skills uh, training so they understand the culture of work. They uh, help them with resume writing, interviewing, digital literacy financial literacy, um, you know, the value system um, yeah. that leads to success in the workplace. You know, sometimes if people haven't been in, you know, work environments, they haven't had a lot of work history, you know, uh, your boss yelling at you, you know, those, those are fighting words. Yeah. You know? so, yeah. Or, or uh, no, you're not going to get paid instantly. You know, it'll be two weeks before you get your check and, and this thing called taxes happens. And uh, so helping people understand that, uh, you know, there's things, things, things that may seem very basic to us, but if people haven't, don't have a lot of work experience, just getting them acclimated to that kind of stuff is very important. You know, uh, are we model our program around uh, a workplace? So we simulate that. You have to come in and you have to be on time. You take breaks. You have a lunch break. You have tasks that you're given, you know, that you got to go do on your own. Um, instructions, you know, following instructions, all, all those kind of things, getting feedback, you know, just all of those kind of things that uh, they are going to experience in the workplace. And, and all those things are not easy, right? We think, no. of, we think of them as being second nature, but they are learned behaviors uh and right. and they have to be internalized and made second nature um and that is that takes that takes time uh and practice when you look at the people that you see coming through safer i mean i wish that all of every single one of your clients you know everybody was 100 percent successful um obviously that's not going to be the case um people fail um What's the difference in your mind, uh, or what are the what are the key differences between a successful um, journey 
and one that that uh, that doesn't succeed at least this time. You know, they may come back. You know, the, uh, and all that. But I, what 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 do you when you look, well, I would I, yeah go ahead. I would say prior to about three or four years ago, when we started moving towards a more holistic model, one big thing was, you know, people didn't have uh, public benefits. They didn't have an ID. They had housing insecurity. They had food insecurity. They had a uh, uh, behavioral health issue that wasn't addressed. All of those things were the things that were causing people to fail. Mm. Um, And so we started moving in that direction for that very reason, that there were some fundamental things that had to be stabilized with people's lives before they could actually fully concentrate on what we were doing with our workforce development program and be successful with that program Mm. Uh, and then go on and be successful with employment. Um, And so that, that was a big, big part of it. Mm. Um, I think the other part of it would be, um, you know, frustration, you Mm. know, um, people run into, they run into resistance. They run into doors being shut, you know, people just blanket excluding them. Right. And sometimes they, they, they get frustrated. We talk to our clients a lot about frustration and setbacks and, um, you know, you're going to go out here and apply for 10 jobs, you know, before you get, you know, one interview and then, and then that one could result in a no, but you can't give up, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's part of the process. You know, I learned that as a salesperson that I'm going to get, you know, nine no's before I get a yes. Or, or even so, a maybe. I, I want to continue the maybe. conversation, <laughs> right? I mean, it's exactly. it's so like, it's yeah. it's rough. And anybody in sales knows that, but I don't think everybody realizes that we're all in sales. In terms of marketing ourselves first. to a world right. around us. Yeah. Uh, uh, and then recently, you know, the digital uh, literacy, uh, and it, it, start, it was starting before COVID that um, you had to apply for jobs online. You didn't fill out a piece of paper. You didn't go into an office. Many first interviews were on the phone or something like that. And in and, and COVID accelerated. Uh, the use of virtual, you know, virtual job fairs and all kinds of things like that. So people who have been incarcerated for five or six years, technology has, I mean, accelerated so rapidly. Um, During COVID, you know, we we got AT&T, put a plug in for them, donated uh, cell phones to us because people were getting released from prison early due to COVID. And uh, everything was shut down. And so what we had to do was uh, we met with them. We gave them a care package that included food and clothing, um, you know, transportation cards, um, you know, bus passes, and a cell phone. Mm. Uh, We had to kind of work with them and teach them how to use the phone because that's how uh, a lot of things were happening you know, uh, with them. It was the only real way of, of doing things at the height of COVID. And so that became a critical thing. Um, so 
not having this kind of digital literacy is a barrier right now to people becoming employed and maintaining employment. And and it's just like, it's not even, literacy makes it sound like, you know, some sort of like, you're not fluent, but I mean, to actually never have been exposed to it, you know, I, I, right. I don't know what a smart, what's a smartphone, you know, what's, yeah. what, what how is, do I upload a document? Yeah. How do I, <laughs> what's an app, you know, um, right. all those things, which, you know, I see my, my elderly mom struggling with her phone, which is, you know, it, it, it's the same problem. It's just in a different context of just a total lack of, unf- uh, a lack of familiarity uh, and not being immersed in, in, in the technology that makes it hard. Now, fortunately, younger people can adapt more quickly, but it's still it's still a huge barrier um, for, for people. I had uh, just like two more questions here, um, Victor. I, I, when you started talking about COVID, it reminded me I wanted to ask you, um, and I'm not do- not just talking about your operations, you know, how it, how it has affected um, the way you do your work, but what has COVID looked like in the communities that you're working in to try to help people with this transition? What is that? What's the big picture that people should know about in terms of um, what the last two years have been like? Well, I think that, that COVID has made uh, people aware, uh, acutely aware uh that there are several different things that certain uh, disinvested communities are dealing with. I mean, number one, it's um, health disparities, physical health disparities, uh, that those those disparities existed already, uh, access to healthy foods, access to uh, preventative health care resources, the ability to afford medicine, and things like that, um, uh, mental health, uh, COVID exacerbated uh, many many of the issues with people having mental health issues. You know, the isolation, the anxiety of, of uh, that COVID produced. I mean, and in a city like Chicago, unfortunately, there are tremendous numbers of mental health experts psychologists, psychiatrists in certain parts of the city and almost none in other parts of the city. Yeah, no, that's like, right. Like, yeah. like on the, the, and the, I think in in the uh, more affluent downtown area of Chicago, there's something like 270 psychologists and psychiatrists. On the west side of Chicago, there's like three or four of a whole section of the city. <laughs> And that so those kind of, how many millions how many things. millions of people you know there are three there are yeah. two two point eight million people in Chicago you know and and it's just it's just those disparities are just incredible I mean and then um, of course uh, many of the people in our our, our lower income communities are uh, were in jobs uh, where they are dealing with the public yeah they are they are they were essential workers. There were grocery stores and other, you know, jobs like that where they're dealing with the public. And so uh, many of them didn't have the luxury of working virtually. Um, and then, again, the technology, the, the digital divide, the lack of access to 
high-speed internet uh, services and things like that, where uh, many communities, people were able to just uh, start working virtually. They, they have computers, they have high-speed internet at home, and it made it very easy to just convert to, um, you know, virtual work. Uh, many communities and many households don't have that. They don't have high-speed internet. Uh, there's some parts of the city where you know the access is not even there. The the uh, it, the fiber uh, connections are not even there. So it's 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 really laid bare a lot of lot of issues, and um, you know many of which uh, you know there's some effort now to try to address those underlying issues. So uh, sort of take us out of this conversation. Uh, or bring us bring us to a conclusion here. I'd like you to just reflect with me for a second. Um, you've been, now been doing this work for a decade or more, uh, and you've got a pretty good grasp on you know what the uh, challenges and opportunities are. So, if you could sort of change a couple things, one or two things like really change them, what, what kind of things would you focus on? Well, I think from a, um, you know, from a policy standpoint, policy legislative standpoint, you know, we, our policy group is really focused on re- reducing barriers to reentry and barriers to opportunity. You know, we have laws in all 50 states, uh, many, barriers to people with records. I think, you know, people say that there are like 40,000 collateral consequences of having a record. All sorts of little rules that say, you know, if you have a record, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, trying to change that and eliminate those those uh, un, unjustified or unwarranted barriers state by state is going to take a thousand years. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, never. I, yeah, never. Exactly. So I, I think that uh, we do need some federal legislation around, um, around some sort of national record sealing law. There's a lot of research that suggests that uh, people who have been incarcerated after five years, three to five years after supervision. They are no more likely to commit a crime yeah. than a person who was never incarcerated. Right, right, maybe less so, actually. Um, yeah. So yeah. So why do we then punish people for the rest of their lives? So you know, if we could find a way to do uh, a ceiling uh, of records, especially for civil matters. Now you know you can do record sealing, and law enforcement can always still have uh, visibility into criminal records. But for most civil matters, we are still punishing people. Um, I, that that would be one thing. Um, getting the society to understand that when we give this lifetime punishment to people, we actually punish ourselves. Yeah, we have people. We 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 have uh, labor shortages. We have uh, people that are unable to take care of themselves and their children that taxpayers end up caring for. We force people to the margins of society and make our communities less safe. Less safe. 
And, you know, we get to a point where we start punishing ourselves. And I think we, we've been at that point for a while. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. most people don't don't understand it. That, it's, costing uh, us, it's, it's costing us about a yeah. trillion dollars a year when you add it all up. Uh, you know, right. not, not not just the cost of incarceration, but all of the ancillary social uh, costs and lost productivity. I mean, it's just, it's just right. an incredible amount of money that we're, we're just throwing away um, because we don't want to think any differently about it. Yeah. And when, when you think about our social services spending, uh, what I, one of the things that we keep ta- telling our legislators and anybody that will listen is that if you look at the population of people with records, they're disproportionately represented in uh, almost every social issue that you want to talk about. If you want to talk about mm-hmm. food insecurity, homelessness, uh, substance, uh, mental health, and you start looking at uh, who's who are we talking about, you will find that you know people with records are represented heavily yeah. in all those areas. So if we focus our spending and we focus on that population, we would be become very efficient, cost efficient mm-hmm. in our use of public dollars to solve these problems. And so um, we could kill five birds, right. you know, with one stone by focusing on the right population. I think that's right. Uh, and and if you could help that population, you would take a step, a pretty significant step toward, I think, interrupting the cycle of intergenerational incarceration as well. Um, that, uh, yeah, I, it, to me, it comes full circle to where we started, because when, when we talk about role models, we we like to you know say, well, you know, all these young kids, they need mentors. We need to we want to parachute these folks in from the suburbs into the cities and become mentors. Well. I used to watch my grandmother and grandfather and uncles getting up at the crack of dawn, getting dressed, going out to work, coming back exhausted, dirty, tired, and hungry. <laughs> that that's what that's what I saw, you know. And I and all over, you know, uh, Chicago and, and you know black communities, Hispanic communities. Uh, that's that's what we saw. Those were the role models, right? They were right, right there in yeah. in the home. They yeah. were, yeah. It goes back to that success so. sequence idea. It's a little hard to, if you don't have anybody around you, finishing high school, uh, getting full time employment, and delaying uh, childbearing. If that's not modeled for you, it's pretty hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you really do need those models. And I want to thank you, Victor, for all of your amazing work and the, the work at safer. Um, it's just, it's always been an inspiration to me, um, to see, uh, what can be done when you invest 50 years in building an organization, um, that is designed, um, you know, to, to meet these, some of the, the toughest social and human needs we face in this country. So really appreciate your coming on, uh, for anybody who's listening, it's the safer foundation. Why don't you tell people how to find, Safer. Yes, uh, on the internet, uh, uh, saferfoundation.org, or uh, you can you can find us on um, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, and um, you know our main office number is three one two nine two two twenty two hundred. And Brent, I want to thank you because 
you know, for the last decade, you have been out there advocating for uh, second chances uh, and for the workforce uh, need uh, business as well as the people who, who really need to be attached to the workforce. And I just thank you so much for continuing to do that. Well, you bet. And uh, this isn't the final word between us. Obviously, we're going to be talking um, hopefully for another decade or so. Um, okay. About how to about right. how to keep pushing this forward. So I thank you again for your time, Victor, and for your work, and um, look forward to staying in touch. Thank you. You be blessed. Okay. You too. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.